Hi, this is Natanya. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Alderpod number six. This will be chapter four, Blooming Day, and is the continuing story of Cora Gray and what is happening in Vel, which is sort of one of the moments of the story where everything starts to get exciting. Thank you so much for being a part of this. I've been really thrilled to see how much my feed list has grown over the last couple of weeks. I also do provide PDFs on my website, which is aldersgatecycle.com or wordpress.aldersgatecycle.com, and you can download those and read along. Everything is Creative Commons, of course. Uh, You'll also find that I have a fairly active blog, as well as some great links if you're interested in steampunk, fantasy, publishing, and all those really cool things that you should be into if you aren't already. At any rate, I do appreciate you listening and look forward to hearing back from you. Thanks, and do enjoy the story. Cora had tried to get back to the house as quickly as she could, which between her tears and her corset was no small feat. She hoped to outpace Jem, who was most certainly trailing her. In spite of Cora's efforts, Jem somehow managed to beat her home and was standing at the front stairs of Grey Manor with her hands across her skinny chest. "'I'm sorry, Cora,' said Jem, as she approached, wiping her face with her gloves. "'But sometimes it doesn't work out like in the tales, you know. "'At least you got a chance to talk to him one last. "'The oak are brutes!' Cora snapped, turning to face the square. "'She could hear low voices cheering as the knights arrived. "'They're simply unworthy of someone like Brick. "'He's valiant. He's brave. They'll corrupt him. "'He's a blacksmith, Cora.' And this is the best chance I'll ever get to get out of Vell, Jem tried, walking down the steps and taking Cora by the arm. You were bound for the academy in a few months anyway. It's easier this way. I don't want him to leave, Cora said. Jem smiled thinly. You'd keep him here? For yourself? No, no, of course not, Cora said. She was beginning to calm down. Jem's advice is always a logical, practical counterpoint to her temper. I just hate that the only person in all of Vell I wanted to dance with tonight wasn't even allowed near me. And the one chance I had to tell him how I feel... Oh, I hate this! Cora pulled off her left glove to reveal her tattoo to Jem, just at the spot where her palm met her wrist, a small alder leaf. All alder daughters received the mark on their first showing, and it stayed with them all their lives. And I truly, truly hate this. Jem looked worried a moment, but her expression shifted quickly to grit-toothed determination as it always did. Cora, you shouldn't speak like that, she said. Why not? It's how I feel. I know it's how you feel, but it's part of who you are. But it isn't fair. I didn't ask for it. Not much is fair, Jem said. What else would you do? I could become a knight, or an advocate. I could do something else. I could have a choice, like Dason or Gregory. But as it is, I can't. I can't do anything. The academy will be my last taste of freedom before I'm married off, and I'll be forced to breed as many children as possible. It killed my mother, Jem. What's to say it won't kill me, too? Jem worked her mouth to say something in response but she stopped at the sound of approaching voices. Cora turned, too, and spotted three figures walking toward Grey Manor. It was only Denna, her sister, escorted by Dason Elgin, the son of Alderman Elgin, and a little wisp of a boy named Mesmer Gimble, 
the son of a prominent alder-class merchant in town. Even in the dim light, Denna was a vision in Mr. Tookson's lovely dress. Her long blonde hair, which looked a pale silver in the moonlight, had been done up in a twist behind her head and studded with desert rosettes, a small flower with paper-thin pink blossoms. Unlike Cora, who favored the freckled, brown-haired greys, Denna looked like their mother, a long, aquiline nose set in an oval face, with long, lashed, large blue eyes. "'Cora, where did you go?' asked Denna, twirling and laughing. Apparently she and Dason had been rehearsing their last dance. "'Did you see? The Oaks God have arrived. It's just like the tales you read to me. You simply have to come. Oh, dear, are you quite all right?' Denna leaned forward and inspected Cora, poking at her tumbled hair and dirty face. She shook her head and tisked, then lowered her voice so only her sister could hear. "'I think you might want to go inside and get tidied up, Coralie. You look as if you've been hit by a sandstorm.' "'I've had a difficult evening,' Cora said, as civilly as she could manage. "'They're asking after you, you know,' Denna continued, letting go of her sister and laughing again. We've promised them two older daughters, and they've only seen one. They're starting to think we've exaggerated. You look awful, Cora, Dason said, wrinkling his nose as he said so. Even on days he wasn't plagued with pimples, his light hair and squinty eyes gave him a distinctly porcine appearance. Cora thought it was extremely fitting, considering he was about as fat as a swine, too. Mesmer Gimble, on the other hand, was fifteen but could have passed for ten. He'd been sick as a child, and though his wealthy parents had brought him all the way to Queensland to the best doctors on the continent, he'd never quite recovered. His large brown eyes were the most prominent feature of his face, giving him a slightly vacant look, and though he was certainly clean, he always seemed just a little ragged around the edges. "'Why aren't you at the dance, Coralie?' Mesmer asked, swaying slightly. "'There's a man there with a gun as long as his leg, and another who doesn't have any hair on his head at all. Not one hair.' Mesmer nodded sagely, as this information were critical to Cora's attendance. "'She's twisted her ankle, Mesmer,' Jem said, sh shaving Cora from the awkward moment. "'She took a nasty spill, and I promised I'd take her in and tend to her foot. She'll be with you all presently.' Glancing at Cora, Mesmer smiled, apparently appeased, and then shrugged, turning on his heel and ambling back in the direction of the square. He was humming dissonantly to a tune in no way similar to the one playing in the distance. Dason rolled his eyes, but stayed. Denna saw through Jem's ruse and pursed her lips. "'There's no twisted ankle,' she replied. "'Come, Cora, whatever's the matter?' Cora didn't want to say anything more, especially not within ear's reach of Dason. He was known to educate the entire town on current events, and as much as Cora wanted to share what had happened with her sister— she was not about to risk Brick's one chance to leave Vell. If Dason found out she'd kissed Brick, there was no knowing what could happen. The younger Gray sister considered a moment, and then turned back to look at the town square between the buildings. The knights were now standing on the dance floor, their wide hats and dusters visible in the lantern light. A few of them were clapping in rhythm with the music, but others stood still as statues. "'Come on, Denna. One of the knights is going to make a speech, and I don't want to miss it,' Dason implored. "'Then go on and dance and listen,' said Jem. "'Meanwhile, I'll fix up Cora's ankle and send her back out. I promise.' This seemed to satisfy Dason and Denna. "'Well, we'll be waiting,' said Denna. "'Hurry back to us.' Jem led her mistress into the house, 
closing the door behind him and locking it with a bratch latch. It smelled as it always had, slightly dusty with a hint of sandalwood, Cora's father's preferred cologne. The smooth wooden floors cracked in all the familiar places, wide boards worn down with years of wear. Before the Greys had moved in, the home was owned by the previous alderman, and was in fact one of the oldest structures in Bell. The windows were made of leaded glass, the upper panes all in colored patterns of tree leaves, alders, ashes, oaks, and maples. Passing her father's empty study, Cora looked longingly at the mahogany door. If only her father would hear, she could at least talk to him about this. He of all people knew Brick wasn't suited for the Order of the Oak. And did he even know the Oak was here, in Vell, this very tick? Cora was tired. Reaching the parlor, she slumped down in the leather armchair, and Jem helped her remove her gloves. Unlike Denna, she'd worn practical shoes. Soft leather boots, actually. And these she left on for the time being, shooing Jem away when she tried to undo the laces. The grandfather clock ticked away across the parlor, the pendulum swinging back and forth, catching the light of the lanterns as Jem turned them on, one by one, until even the eyes on the stuffed falcon above the mantel flickered. Cora watched the gears in the clock turn with the movement, and sighed. "'Can I get you something?' Jem asked. "'Tea, perhaps? I just cooked some lemon drop biscuits this afternoon, and they'll be quite good still.' "'No,' Cora said, leaning her chin on the heel of her hand. "'I think I'll just take a nap for a little while.' "'All right. I'll be in the kitchen if you need me. Vester and Senry are out back, too, working on fixing the roof in the shed. They shouldn't be at it much longer.' Just give a holler if you need anything. Thank you, Jem. Jem bobbed her head and departed, leaving Cora to mull alone in the parlor. She could hear Vester and Senry hammering from the back, but it was distant enough not to bother her. She looked to the stacks of books piled up around the mantel. On knighthood, the virtues of the kingdom, the queens of arena lost and not forgotten, the realms of old, a history of the great island war. She'd read most of them in her spare time, encouraged by her father. But staring at them now, they gave her no comfort. Their leather spines shone in the light, but she had no desire to read them. So Cora Gray nestled down further in her father's worn leather chair, pulled an afghan up around her shoulders, and just looked out the window, watching the waning light and hoping Denna would come home soon. Cora must have fallen asleep. When she woke again with a start, she could still hear voices from the festival outside, but the lanterns had burned down. The moons were hidden behind clouds. The sounds of Vester and Senry working on the shed had ceased. It took her a few ticks to realize, but as she rose, she noticed the voices outside were not, in fact, voices of celebration as she had thought upon waking. Someone was shouting. Then there were gunshots. While not altogether uncommon at a festival, these were not the shots of revelers. They were reciprocated, with larger, more resounding replies. Then a rumbling came, like a long thunderclap, followed by more cries. Jem, Cora said, fumbling to turn on the lantern. Jem, she tried again, squinting in the dark through her specks, but the lantern would not ignite. 
Cora's belly had gone cold, and she was trembling all over. But she didn't want fear to get the best of her. Taking deep breaths, she tried to straighten her thoughts. This was made difficult by the soreness at her ribs where the busks of her corset had dug into her while she slept. Without Jem to help her out of the confounded contraption, she had no chance of catching her breath. The guns had sounded like military issues, she thought, similar to the sort she often practiced with at Jack the Blacksmith's. That would mean that her reservations about the Oaks Guard had been right. Knights or no. Her father had always taught her that the Oaks Guard were simply knights with their own idea of justice. When they showed up, there was always an ulterior motive. Cora prayed that it had nothing to do with her friend still out there, not to mention her sister. The last thing she wanted was Denna in harm's way, and she had practically begged her to leave her alone just a few turns before. How could she have been so selfish? Denna only wanted her company, and Cora had brushed her off to take a nap. Had she gone, she would have at least been able to help Denna if anything bad had happened. But no, Cora didn't want to think about that just now. More shots rang out, this time closer than before, maybe even from two houses down where the Cotlingers lived. She crouched on the ground, getting below the line of the windows, listening. That's what a knight would do, she thought, understand his surroundings. The sounds of horses and carriage wheels screeching added to the growing cacophony outside. So it wasn't just a cavalry. She could feel her heart pounding and slowly made her way across the hall on all fours toward her father's study. In her father's study was a gun. At least if they came for her, she'd have some protection. The door to the study was slightly ajar, and she pushed it open with the flat of her hand, moving through the dark room by memory. She found the loose floorboard and felt beneath it. There was a smooth box beneath, and her fingers found the dial of the safe. Holding her breath, she worked the dial back and forth as she had been taught to do a hundred times. Even in the dark, she knew the movements. Less than a click later, and the satisfying metal clack let her know she'd gotten in past the lock. Cora took the gun, still wrapped in its velvet blanket. As quietly as she could, she checked for ammunition. Enough for a few rounds, but not more. Her father's gun was meant for protection, but it was beautiful, too. She didn't need the light to remember the gun's smooth silver lines etched with the running stag of House Grey. The gun smelled as it always had, the wood oiled just before Alderman Grey had left for Aldermoot, a sweet scent mingled with sixteen years' worth of memories. Cora cursed her clumsy fingers as she fussed with the revolver. The chilly night had sent a draft up through the floorboards, and the metal workings of the gun were frigid under her touch. She took a few shallow breaths, going over countless lessons she'd had, but the pull of panic still played behind her thoughts, a pulse always a beat faster than her own heart. Someone let out a scream that echoed eerily against the buildings. Then there was silence. Cora's heart was now in her throat, and she clenched her teeth to keep quiet. The scream had been a man's, she reminded herself, and not a woman's. She feared the next might be her sister's. Inching her way across the floor, Cora put the revolver down the front of her corset and skirted the wall that came round into the hallway. The prickly wool carpet transitioned to smoother wood planks here, and she could feel granules of sand on her sweaty palms. The old boards were always shifting, and as she moved forward she felt them creak under the pressure of her weight. 
Then from outside, boots crunched through the gravelly ground, and Cora froze. She had been lost in non-thought, wrapped only in her senses, feeling, touching, hearing. Now panic began to tickle again at the back of her mind. Then came more footsteps as someone, two someones, she realized, mounted the stairs, each footfall like the dull beat of a drum, followed by the tinkling of spurs. Cora pulled back into the study, still maintaining a clear view of the door. Against the stained glass, the light of the two moons cast a shadow, two tall hats and broad shoulders. Knights. One of the knights tried the door, but it had been locked. Low murmurs followed. Cora couldn't help but jump as a fist came through the glass, sending multicolored shards tinkling to the ground, catching the moonlight as they fell. Cora's thoughts slowed as the knights entered. They would find her, she knew. That much was inevitable. There were only so many places in the house she could hide, and it was better to catch them unaware than the reverse. It was doubtful they'd expect she could wield a gun at all, so she'd have the upper hand for a few ticks anyway. Her father had taught her that protecting herself was always of the utmost importance, and it extended to her sister. She would not fail him. This is the house, one of the men said. His voice reminded Cora of the sound of wood being scoured with a lathe. She heard one of the men make a low, growling noise in the back of his throat, and then spit on the carpet, and she choked back the curse she wanted to send his way. She kept as quiet as she could, her breath shuddering and her ears like wind. "'She's in there,' said the second voice, a younger tone with native Queensland consonants. "'The little rat told us this was a house. Hopefully she'll go as easily as her sister.' "'Denna!' The realization overtook her, paralyzing where, her where she was, both mentally and physically. If Denna's life was in danger, she had to act soon. Her window of opportunity wouldn't last much longer. If I were a knight, she thought, I wouldn't balk. I wouldn't think twice. But she was afraid. In all the books she had ever read, and all those her father had shared with her, the topic of fear was never touched upon. Slowly, Cora stood, her skirts rustling as she did so, the petticoat snagging on her foot and letting out an alarmingly loud tearing noise. Both knights fell silent and engaged their weapons. Her cover blown, Cora did the only sensible thing she could. She gripped the gun in her both hands and twirled out into the hallway, leveling the weapon at the trespassers. Mustering all her courage, she whispered through numb lips, Get out of my house. She must have sounded amusing to them, for both of the knights began to chuckle at her. Her chest tightened with mingled fear and fury. How could they laugh at her? Gods damn them. One of the figures reached over and lit the lantern in the entryway, and his face came to life from the darkness. He was perhaps twenty or so, and startlingly handsome, so much so that Cora wondered if her assumptions of the Oaks Guard could have been mistaken. She almost lowered his gun. His round face was punctuated by a dimpled chin, and he had warm brown eyes that certainly weren't as menacing as Cora had thought they would be. He smiled and held up his hands. Dressed in traditional knighting gear, he wore a long gray duster and a green vest beneath, with a black kerchief tied around his neck. He carried silvered guns at his hips, and, Cora knew, a host of other weaponry at the ready should he need them. 
His hat was wide-brimmed and set back on his head, letting loose a couple of free brown curls. It seemed impossible that such a face could be capable of cruelty. "'Come now, lass,' he said then, his voice low and smooth. Still, it sent a shiver down Cora's spine. "'Put the gun down. You don't want to shoot your foot off. Truly, we're here on Queen's business, so there's no need resorting to violence.' Clearing her throat, Cora said, "'If it's the Queen's business, then why in hell is everyone screaming?' "'Resistance is a strange thing,' said the second knight, removing his hat. He was bald and missing an eye, but his ugliness would have been apparent even without those shortcomings. His mouth was just a crooked gap between his chin and nose, and his skin was the color of spoiled milk. "'Makes people resort to rather desperate options, I find. But that's neither here nor there, lass.' You best put the gun down and come with us. We've got a comfortable spot for you in the carriage. Cora flinched at the mention of a carriage. She squared her shoulders, concentrating on the green kerchief around the bald knight's neck, just like the green glass bottle on the fence post. First of all, I'm not going into a carriage, and second of all, why should anyone be resisting? We have orders to take you to Hartley Castle. Queen's orders. Your local folks here, well, they haven't taken kindly to that. They seemed to think we had to wait until the alderman arrived. But that's not for three months. And you're due to arrive in the castle in two weeks. He grinned thinly. I'm not going anywhere, she said, willing her voice even. The younger knight sighed, wiping his brow with the back of his hand. He moved a few steps closer to Cora, and she adjusted the gun from the bald one to him. "'You're sadly outnumbered, dear,' he said, his tone dripping with condescension. At first she had liked the young knight's eyes, but now they began to roam her body, to size her up. "'You can shoot one of us, and if your aim is true, you still won't have enough time to get the other one down before you're pinned down and forced into the carriage. Understand? The last thing we want you to be is damaged.' He was choosing his words carefully, measuring them as he stepped closer to her. Out of the corner of her eye, Cora thought she caught the glimpse of something out the front door. A wisp of white. But the young knight was gaining ground. She would either have to shoot him or let him take her. Anda, come now, said the one-eyed knight, impatient. We need to get a move on. You've plenty of time to get to know the girls on the trip back to Queensland, yeah? I suppose you're right, Sir Ander said, halting his approach. He was only about three paces from Cora now, and he flicked his fingers impatiently. No, Cora said, certain this time she saw something, or someone, by the front window. Foul or fair, there was no way to tell, but if she was going to find any way out of this that didn't include a ride in a carriage to Queensland, she'd have to buy all the time she could. I, I won't go easily. Oh, I didn't expect that, said Sir Ander. Cora's heart soared with the momentary thought that Brick had somehow found a way to her. That was it. Brick was going to burst through the back door any moment, guns blazing, and shoot both the knights dead. Then he'd take her away and... Before she let her imagination get away with her, she tried to delay a few more moments. I... I'll need to get a few things first. The older knight shook his bald head, the skin near his ears slick with sweat. Listen, lass, there isn't anything you have that you could possibly be better than what they'll have for you at Hartley Castle. 
But how could the queen do this? She sent notice months ago, said the bald knight. You were supposed to be ready. But father would have said something to me before he left. He wouldn't have let that happen, Cora said. He did, I assure you. The alderman voted months ago to ratify the queen's decree. So here we are. Now most of the townspeople of... What was this one called again? Sir Ander asked. Vell, replied the older knight, his tone exasperated. It's on the fecking map. Sir Ander laughed. Right, right. At any rate, you Vellians don't seem to grasp the concept of a royal decree. Your dim-witted townsfolk have refused to hand you over. One of them tried to shoot our captain. As such, we've had to resort to force. Ander was looking at her again, his gaze moving down her neck and over her breasts. He smiled, his lips spreading over his white teeth. Not as lovely as your sister, I should say, he added. But you'll do well enough. That was it. Cora had committed herself to the act. Ander would have to die. But as soon as Cora squeezed the trigger, she knew something had gone wrong. The gun misfired, kicking back violently. She stumbled backward and hit her head on the railing, losing her footing and twisting her ankle. Black spots blossomed before her eyes, and she saw the bald-headed knight hopping around and heard him shouting. "'Bitch shot me in the leg!' he screamed, his voice assuming a high-pitched timber, not unlike Mrs. Gravatt next door when she discovered dirt hogs digging in her garden. Sir Ander grabbed her quickly then, hoisting her to her feet, and then slapped her across the face, hard. She felt her teeth clack together, her temples throbbing from the impact and her ears ringing. Her spectacles barely stayed on her face, but she couldn't write them. Ander then grabbed her from behind and twisted her arms, pinning them back with surprising strength. His voice hissed into her ear. A lively one, he said, but we'll tame you, I, like a good tanfer. His hand roamed up the front of her bodice and cupped over her breast, squeezing hard. She tried to struggle, but he only groped harder, kicking her with his knee. Cora was overwhelmed with the sudden knowledge that she had failed herself, her sister, her father, her training. She began to sob in spite of herself. Then two gunshots followed quickly in succession, and the tinkling of more glass. Andrew went slack behind Cora, falling to the ground with a thud. She looked up through a curtain of hair as she saw the bald-headed man clutch his shoulder and fall. In the doorway stood Jem, in her night shift, her pale face wreathed in smoke. "'Run outside now!' Jem ordered, rushing to her mistress's side. Cora's legs felt as if they'd been filled with water. She couldn't move. She couldn't run. She would just languish here and die. "'Jem! Jem!' It was the only thing that she could say. Ander was stirring at her feet. The one-eyed knight did not move. Jem stooped down to grab the alderman Gray's gun. Take this, she said, thrusting it at Cora. And move, quick! Jem ran off in the direction of the kitchen, her white shift billowing behind her. Cora limped off after her, the gun still warm in her fingers. She gasped for air as she went, choking back sobs. Her lip was bleeding, filling her mouth with the taste of mezzel. A panic rose in her, the strain of an old territory song running through her mind over and over again. Hill and dale and moon and vale, one face, two face, three face, four. Jem led her outside, 
where all was silent but for the low buzzing sound of something toward the dance floor. Cora wanted to ask what it was, but there was no time for it. Jem pressed her onward, whispering over her shoulder, and then took a sharp left down into the crawl space beneath the house. Cora stuffed the gun down the front of her bodice again and followed after Jem, squeezing in under the lattice work. It smelled dusty and dry and reminded her of her childhood days when she and Brick had hidden under there together, escaping into their own imaginations. But there was no illumination now. What light the moons had provided was gone. Over here! Crawling in Jem's direction, Cora felt the grade of the ground decline. Her fingers touched dust and then something smooth. Wooden planks. She choked back more tears, wiping her bloody nose in the back of her hand. Back up and hush, said Jem. But hush! Her eyes slowly adjusted to the dark, and Jem's white shift stood out in her line of vision. The maid pulled at a latch and opened a door. It made a slight grinding noise, but nothing that would carry far. The odd buzzing continued, low and persistent, the thrumming making Cora's ears tickle slightly. Down inside. I'll be right behind you, Jem said. There was no time to argue. Cora felt the rungs of a ladder right below the lip on the trap door. Her ankle ached as she put her weight down on it, but with a little balancing she was able to get her footing and lower herself down. She was walking into complete darkness, but a surprisingly cool breeze lifted up her skirts. Jem stayed at the front of the escape a moment, and then began descending after Cora, closing the door behind them. Keep going down until you hit the floor. You should feel it. It's about thirty rungs down. What is this place? whispered Cora up to Jem in the dark. Servant's passage. Cora, just keep moving. Cora's feet finally met the ground, a firm, flat surface that might have been cobbled. She winced and yelped as she came down on her foot, and Jem descended quickly beside her, helping her to sit. Hush a moment. I'll wrap up your ankle, but we can't tarry long. Jem, just listen to me for the next few ticks, okay? I promise it'll make a little more sense once we get out of here, but for now... Jem was talking as she pulled up the hem of Cora's dress and removed a long strip of cloth. She wound this deftly around Cora's ankle, first feeling for any broken bones. Apparently satisfied with the state of the foot, she tightened the bandage and then helped her to stand. I can't see anything, Cora said. I can't feel anything. Jem, I'm so scared. Cora, you're just in shock. I need you here with me. But I can't. She was on the verge of hysterics, sobs welling up in her throat again, threatening to choke her. The darkness was overwhelming, a giant nothing in which she had no control. She could still feel Anders' hands on her body, exploring her in ways no one had ever done before, both terrifying her and exciting her. It was a horrifying thought. Just as Cora thought she was going to scream, Jem took Cora's face gently with both her hands. Cora could not see her maid in the dark, but she could feel her presence, as familiar as her own sister. Jem kissed Cora softly on the lips, her touch as brief as the flutter of a prairie hopper's wing. Though Cora was surprised, to say the least, she also found herself filled with warmth, and her mind suffused with clarity. Her fear retreated momentarily, like a tide leaving the shore. "'Can you get yourself together?' asked Jem. Her hands were cold now on Cora's cheeks, but the voice was reassuring, strong. "'I think so.' "'Here,' Jem said, and fell silent a moment, her hands dropping away from Cora's face. Then she shivered as Jem pressed another gun into her hands, 
the etched grips rough and familiar. It's your father's gun, Jem said. Cora tried to ask a question, but Jem shushed her, the twin to the one who used to try and kill the knights. I know you can use it. I've seen how you shoot. You're a good enough shot to carry two guns. Jem didn't wait for Cora to ask the question, where in the moon said Jem got her father's other gun, but took her free hand and walked on further into the deepening darkness beneath it fell. Although the darkness around them was complete, it was not empty. She could hear rats scuttling against the dry ground every now and then, followed by their addled chattering. As they walked on, Cora noticed that the temperature dropped to the point she was nearly shivering. She pulled at her sleeves, willing that they had been made of something more substantial than silk. Her fingers were numb as she gripped the guns. Jem stopped suddenly and squeezed Cora's shoulder. They stood stock still, listening in the all-encompassing dark. Cora took a moment to reach out for the other side of the wall, for surely if this was a tunnel, she could feel the other side. Don't move, whispered Jem. A fluttering of wind on her face was all the warning she had as a host of bats flew around her, catching in their hair, their manic chattering reverbering off of every stone in the tunnel. Claws scratched at her face, teeth bit at her arms. Jem had, Jem had said not to move, but fear had paralyzed her so much that movement seemed beyond comprehension. Warm furry bodies continued to press on against her, and still Jem held onto her shoulder, squeezing harder as if to solidify her existence, reassuring her without words. Then it was over, as quickly as it had begun, the silence returning again. Cora's face stung in a thousand places. Tiny claws and teeth had cut through her skin. "'Gods!' she said. "'What was Look up!' Jem said softly. Cora turned her eyes up and saw the break in the ceiling that she could have sworn had not been there until the bats had flown some hundred or so feet above. The moons had been hidden behind clouds earlier, but now a crisp, cool light filtered down, reflecting off of dirt and rocks down the shaft and into the tunnel. "'Where are we?' asked Cora. "'Almost safe,' said Jem. "'What do you—' "'Shh, get down!' The urgency in Jem's voice demanded to be obeyed. Cora ducked, responding to the command as surely as if she were a soldier at arms, and hardly had time to wonder why she had taken an order from her maid when Jem was moving again, tapping her on the shoulder. Jem swept her own gun from side to side and then said, "'You can get up, Cora. It's just Professor.' Cora stood slowly and looked to where Jem gestured with the barrel of her gun. There, a few paces from them, was Professor, standing under one of the moon grates high above the tunnel. Her little round face was bathed in silvery white, but the many lines in her face looked deepened and intensified, her specks giving her a slightly owlish appearance. There was a large backpack affixed to her, emitting a low, buzzing sound, and she had a rifle, sized just right for her, balanced in her hands. Cora wondered if the sound coming from Professor was the one she had noticed from before. "'We've got to move,' Professor said, her voice huskier than usual. "'You made it,' Jem said. "'Barely,' Professor said, clutching her arm with a gloved hand. "'Gonna need you, Jem, to check the bandage. Got a knife in the forearm.' "'Professor,' said Cora, rushing to the little woman, trying to throw her arms around her to embrace her. But Professor halted Cora a few steps shy of reaching her. "'No time, Cora.' We gotta move. Did you see Brick and Denna? she asked. Professor looked weary and then her lip twitched strangely, as if she'd felt a stab of pain. 
I've taken care of them as best as I can. But now I've got to take care of you, Cora. You need to trust me. And you need to listen. But listen to me, Cora. Vel is burning, Professor said. And we will too if we don't move. But what about... But someone was shooting at them from behind, and Cora's questions were swallowed in a barrage of gunfire. The bullets skid against the side of the cave, sending sparks that blossomed like momentary flowers. There was immediate chaos, and Professor barked an order, and Jem hurled herself at Cora, tumbling down an incline down to the tunnel. There was a click, and Professor scurried back toward them. Then the tunnel exploded in golden light, and rock rained down. Cora felt the debris in her hair, and something raked across her scalp. She felt even more lightheaded than before. Get up! Cora was brought to her feet once more. Keep moving, said Jem. Professor pulled on Cora's arm. The order of the older, oldest and first, muttered Cora, reciting the lines her father had taught her. Then the order of the rose, closest to all queens. She was dimly aware of being led further down, her heart thudding in her ears as she stumbled. Jem shot a gun. Professor was shooting a gun. The Order of the Heart, Protectors of the Forest, the Order of the Oak, Steadfast Messengers, and the Order of the Asp, on the borders of the land, to keep us safe. To keep us safe. 